Hey, thanks for listening to the Bellevue Christian Church podcast. We're a church in Bellevue, Pennsylvania, where ordinary people are learning to live everyday life like Jesus. We believe that one way to learn that life is by engaging with an ancient but active collection of books called the Bible every single week. If this teaching leaves you with a question about the content or a story of what God is doing in your life, please send a message to hello at bellevuechristian.church because we'd love to hear from you. Well, good morning, and happy Labor Day. It's Labor Day. I'm supposed to be off, right? Tomorrow, I said, okay. Um, I want to start off with a quick survey. How many of you would say that Bellevue Christian Church is a good church? Good. I was worried we'd have three people that would raise their hand. So, you know, but if I was going to ask you to kind of, I was going to ask you, if I asked you to pinpoint what would make the church great or good, what would you what would you say? What makes the church good? Debbie. Debbie. I paid you to say that. I paid him. You paid him, yes. What else makes the church good? Discipleship. Discipleship, good. Bible believing. Community. Outreach. What was that, Kimberly? You and Pastor Austin. Oh, being Pastor Austin—that's nice, Kimberly. I paid Kimberly to say that. Uh, um, yeah, Bible preaching—it would be good. I think those are all, again, good things that would come up. You know, you can list things like the, an awesome children's ministry. You know, you, uh, good young adults ministry. You could obviously list some of the many things we do behind the scenes, uh, uh, all the service projects that are going on. Just a lot of things that would make the church. Uh, good that would classify the church as good, but really what we're interested in is not simply just being a a good church. What we really want to try to become is a great church, and a great church basically means that you can't just rely on the things that we're able to do ourselves, which are a lot of things that we mentioned, but really begin to rely on the things that only God can do, that only God can do through the power of the Holy Spirit. In other words, we need to become a spirit-filled church. And some of you may say, well, what does it mean to become a spirit-filled church? How do we find out about that? Well, fortunately, we can look right in our Bible, in the book of Acts. Anyway, we're going to start this new series this week called The Spirit-Filled Church. And really what we're going to be doing is just kind of listening, looking at some of the, the, the marks really of a, of a spirit-filled church and what that, what that might look like. And again, there's a lot of different ways you can look at a spirit-filled church. But what we want to do is, is look at the book of Acts, because within the book of Acts, what we find is really the story of the birth of the church, the birth of Christianity and the birth of the church. And if you've never read Acts, or if some of you have read Acts, you, you know that it's, a, it's really an amazing story. In a nutshell, it's a story about kind of a, a ragtag group of people that didn't have a lot going for them. You know, they had no necess- they didn't have any degrees. They had no titles. They were, they were not celebrities. A lot of them didn't have any wealth whatsoever. They really didn't have much at all. They didn't have the uh, access to any real forms of communication. They didn't have a, uh, an advertising budget. They didn't have access to the internet or, or Facebook or all the other social media things that we have nowadays. And really today, if you looked at that group, you'd probably say they're kind of a group of, of nobodies. You know, a group of nobodies that, that yet were, was able to turn the world upside down, you know, in a manner that where by the second century they became a, a real spiritual force in the entire Roman Empire. So much so that you had the Emperor Constantine basically issued an edict 
that made Christianity legal. And within like 60 years or so, Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire. And as we know today, that, that, uh, that church began to grow and continues to grow today where we have up to like 2.3 billion people that would claim that they are Christians. And so it is a really an amazing story uh, that had a very humble, humble beginning. So really what we have in the early church, we have the epitome of not just a good church, but really the epitome of a great church. And so if we want to be a great church, then we just have to kind of walk through the book of Acts and begin to understand what made that church so great. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to kind of go through the book of Acts. We're not going to go through the entire book. We're probably focused on the first eight chapters or so. But we're going to be looking for some very specific marks of the church. What, what made them stand out? But today, being Labor Day weekend, and we have the children up here today, we're going to keep it short. I kept it a little short the first service. Nobody seemed to complain. Everybody was curious why I kept it short, but nobody complained. So again, you're going to get kind of a, a, a short summary, because really what I want to do is just simply lay the foundation. Look at the first few verses of the book of Acts, like up to, I think, verse 8, just that would lay the foundation not only for the series but for the entire book of Acts. So if you want to look, open your Bibles, we're going to be looking at uh, Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. And while you're doing that, I'll just give you a little bit of background on the book of Acts. The book of Acts actually didn't have a title until about the second century. Uh, it was, I'm not sure who assigned the title, but they assigned it simply as Acts. And uh, most believe that it's really meant to uh, pertain to the Acts of the early disciples you know, after following the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. As far as when it was written, so most believe it was written about between 60 and 62 A.D. How do we know? Uh, we really don't know for certain, but all we can say, is, of the scholars suggest, is that there's a, there's a lot of people, places, events, things that are named in the book of Acts that can also uh, be kind of compared to some historical documents that already existed during that period. And plus, you know, things like the, the fact that uh, Acts does not mention the fall of Jerusalem that happened about 70 AD, and certainly they believe that that would have been mentioned, or it doesn't mention also the, the persecution of the Christians by Nero in 64 AD. So again, that's more evidence of why this book would have been written around 60 to 62 AD. As far as the authorship of the book, uh, most believe that it was written by a guy named Luke, Dr. Luke, who was also happened to be the guy who wrote the Gospel of Luke, or believed to be written the Gospel of Luke, and also was a traveling companion of the Apostle Paul. As far as the content of the book, the general content is that we see in, in, in again, the Acts, it's kind of the, the spread of Christianity from Jerusalem all the way across the Roman Empire. So it becomes the primary record, really, of the birth and the growth of the church. But again, more than that, it's again a picture of, a, of, a, of a, just a ragtag group of people who, who were able to take this thing, this, this message about Jesus Christ, and be able to form a movement that would soon expand all through the Roman Empire. So a little bit, with that little bit of background, what I'd like to do is look through the first two, two verses of, of chapter 1, verse 8. Where, I'm sorry, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, where it says, In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. Now, if you're reading this on your own, the first question that might come to your mind is, you know, what book is he talking about? And also, maybe who is this guy named Theophilus? Again, when he says my former book, assuming it's Luke, he's probably referring to the Gospel of Luke. 
But as far as the name Theophilus, we really don't know a lot about the name Theophilus. It actually is, is in the introduction of the Gospel of Luke. But we don't know a lot about him other than there's some suspicion that he may have been a wealthy friend of Dr. Luke who helped sponsor uh, basically the, the, the writing of his books. And that's all, you know, that's the, basically what some of the scholars suspect. But we do know that his name has a special meaning, which implies that he possibly may have been a Christian or at least a believer in God, because the name Theophilus means friend of God. That's just a great name, Theophilus, friend of God. Any, any Theophilus in here? See, nobody's taken that name yet, you know, and I know that in this day and age, you know, some of these millennials are interested in finding just the perfect name out there, right? And a lot of these names are very unique, and many of them are very biblical. I would say, you know, if nobody of your friends has grabbed Theophilus yet, grab that as a name for your next boy, right? I said, if I'm ever going to have another child, I'm going to name my boy Theophilus. And Debbie's shaking her head and saying, hey, Charlie, that ship has sailed. Sorry, you know, we're not going <laughs> to, no more little babies around our house. But anyway, you know, Theophilus is a great name because it means, again, friend of God. Can you imagine if, you know, the first day of school, you know, the, the teacher says, Theophilus, what does that name mean? And he says, ah, oh, that means friend of God. It's a great name, but most people would probably end up calling him Theo, which is fine. But again, it's a, it's a good name. But that's all we really know about Theophilus. And so what Luke is doing here, he's basically addressing this letter to Theophilus. And then he goes on and gives him a little bit of the content. He gives a clue to the content. When he says, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach. And I know, again, that we tend to want to skip over certain words. But this word began... It's something you probably shouldn't skip over. You've got to ask, well, why does he say began? What he's suggesting is that the gospel, his earlier work, was not the end of the story. That there's more to the story of Jesus. There's more going on in the story of Jesus than, than just what is recorded in the gospel. So in some sense, what he's, he's kind of laying out there is that Acts is a continuation of that story. And that's what it is. Again, with the story, you know, we have the story of what all that Jesus was, was doing and teaching in the gospel. This is a continuation. Acts is just simply a continuation of, of what he continues to do in the world. And so what he's suggesting is this is not simply just another history book. This is a, a really special book that's talking about the continuation of the ministry and teaching of Jesus Christ all across the world. And the other thing that he points out, or subtly points out, is that this story, and his, the, the coming story, the story of Acts, is really grounded in this idea of the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ. You know, when he says the words, until the day he was taken up in heaven, implies both a resurrection and implies an ascension. Very strong words and very words that speak again to the reality of the resurrection and the ascension. Words that are similar to what he spoke at the end of his gospel where he wrote, when he, he being Jesus, had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. So what we have here is the reality of this resurrection and the ascension is kind of becomes the link between the two books, between the gospel of Luke and also the book of Acts. But also is letting Theo know that, you know, this is not just a, a Jesus, a man, a good moral teacher that happened to be crucified in a cross because he said some things that the Jewish elite didn't like, or he said, did some things that the, the Roman army didn't like. No, he's talking about a guy that soon would become the risen Savior, the long-awaited Messiah. 
And again, this, this, uh, uh, this Messiah was not simply some sort of a, a supernatural being, was not, not in any ways a, a ghost or anything like that. You know, when he rose from the grave, before he ascended up to heaven, Jesus made it, a, made it a point to travel around Jerusalem, making himself known to the people. In fact, Luke goes on to write, after his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. So he was hanging around, you know, enjoying meals with his friends, talking about the kingdom of God, just that he'd been doing, you know, all through the, the gospel of Luke. And he was doing that because he needed to provide proofs that it was him, that he was indeed alive. Because back in the day, you know, there was a lot of conspiracy theories going around. You know, that Jesus, you know, uh, the body might have been stolen. Or maybe Jesus didn't die. There's all these different theories that were going around. So Jesus had to provide convincing proofs. Now, if it happened today and Jesus was believed uh, to live to, or Jesus lived today and, 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 and somebody started talking about a resurrection, you know, today somebody would just take a selfie with Jesus or something like that or, or film a video and upload it to a YouTube channel. And, and you know, people would probably say, oh, okay, I guess Jesus is alive. But obviously he didn't have that type of technology back then. So Jesus had to make himself known to as many people as possible. In fact, the Apostle Paul suggests that Jesus made appearances to over 500 people. He writes in 1 Corinthians that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me. So over 500 people he appeared to. He appeared to. And so, you know, he's making this case that, again, we're, we're talking about the resurrected and soon-to-be-ascended Jesus Christ. And you, you might ask the question, well, why is it so important that he begins the book like this? It's important because without the resurrection, without the ascension, you have no good news. You have nothing. Nothing at all, but you have a, a dead Messiah or a dead someone who claimed to be a Messiah. And a dead Messiah is not worth really starting a movement around, the type of movement that we were talking about. Because if you have a dead Messiah, you basically might have had a, a good man, a, a religious zealot, and possibly even had a good message, but the message would have died with him. And so for people to pick up and, and take that message, all the while knowing that Jesus died and never rose from the grave, you know, it'd be foolish. What Paul would suggest would be, would be almost pitiful. In fact, he writes later, he says, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. In other words, if Jesus didn't raise from the grave, we're surely not going to raise from the grave. And so to follow a dead Messiah is really pitiful. And so that's, again, why he sets this up up front. He wants them to know that not only that, that this book is a continuation of the ministry and teaching of Jesus Christ, but it's firmly grounded in the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ. And about this time, you know, we may be thinking, or any reader might be thinking, or Theophilus may be thinking, it's like, okay, so if Jesus has been raised from the grave and is soon to be ascended into heaven, then how is the book, the book of Acts, to be a continuation of the teaching and ministry of Jesus Christ? And I, th I think Luke probably anticipates this, and he, he reminds Theophilus that, you know, that, that, that Jesus has promised a gift, a very special gift, a gift of the Holy Spirit that would carry on the work of Jesus. And so he writes, he reminds them that on one occasion, while he, again, he being Jesus, was eating with them, he gave them this command, 
Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, if you're familiar with the gospel, you know that Jesus is pointing back to the early part of his ministry where John the Baptist was out there telling all the Jewish people that they had to repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. And uh, that's what he's pointing back to. And he's saying, you know, this is what happened back then when John came. But something better is going to be happen, happen now. Not only are you going to be immersed in water, which is what the word baptism means, is to be immersed, be put under. You are going to now be immersed in the Holy Spirit. In other words, an amazing thing is going to happen. You are going to be plunged into the power of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is often referred to as the Spirit of Christ. And so get ready. This is a big thing coming. Now, you would think that the, the apostles would be beside themselves in excitement. You know, this is something that's really going to happen. I was baptized in water. Now I'm going to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. But for some reason, they're still kind of thinking in, 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 in earthly terms. Because they ask kind of a, they begin to ask questions about this kingdom that Jesus is talking about. And so we read, they say to him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Again, a clear indication that their mind was still pretty much on earthly things. That they were thinking about this earthly kingdom that was coming down that Jesus would put in place. And that they may have some particular status or role within that kingdom. Now we could criticize the, the apostles all we want, but reality is that was, a, that was the mindset of the day. You had Jewish people that were basically waiting for a king to show up. That they had lived so long in this oppression by the, not only the Jews, but the Romans, that in their writings, in fact, if you go back, way back to the book of Psalms, you begin to see that their writings anticipated a day that God would come into their situation, intervene in a very powerful way, put his king on the throne. That king would be the king over all Israel that would rule over all the other nations, bringing the blessings on Israel and bringing the wrath upon all other nations. So that's the mindset that they're living in. And it's not totally wrong. Jesus is setting up a kingdom, but not in a kingdom in the way he thinks, and not in the order, not according to the timeline that the people are thinking. And so he sets them straight. He, says, he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So he's saying, you know, you're on the wrong timeline here. You've got to shift gears here. Yeah, the kingdom is coming, but it's not up to you to determine that. All you need to worry about right now is that you're about to get a gift. The gift is called the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is going to provide you with power. In fact, the underlying word here that we translate power is sometimes translated dynamite, and that's what it is. It's the same word, dynamis or something. And it's, it's basically, you're going to receive the Spirit, re, receive the corresponding power that's going to enable you to be my witnesses all through out the world, starting in the city of Jerusalem, expanding to Judea and the surrounding countryside, going into that place they didn't like to go into, the Samaria, and then to the farthest ends of the world. You know, so what we have here, and some, some people say that in these opening passages, we actually have an outline for the book of Acts. 
Because really, that's what's going on. That's how Acts unfolds. The receipt of the Spirit and then the witnessing into all the lands. And again, these people, they could not do it by their own strength, by their own merit, by their own title, by their own finances. They could not do it on their own. They could only do it through the power, the dynamite, so to speak, of the Holy Spirit. And that's what we see, again, when we open up the book of Acts, we begin to see immediately this power released at the beginning of the launch of the church and all throughout the, the history of the church, you're seeing the, the Holy Spirit show up in, in a mighty ways, doing things that only the Holy Spirit could do, doing the things, the only, only things that, that God or, or Jesus Christ could do. So much so that a lot of people would say, this book shouldn't be called simply the Acts of the Apostles, rather it should be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit's the one doing all the action out there. And so, again, you know, you, you, they needed that power to do the amazing acts, the great things that they could not do on their own. You know, so much so that some of suggest that if you could somehow pull the Holy Spirit out of that first century church, if the Holy Spirit never showed up, you'd probably have a church that would just collapse. There's a guy, a theologian, A.W. Tozer, that says it like this. He says, if the Holy Spirit had been withdrawn from the New Testament church, 95% of what they did would stop and everybody would know the difference. If the Holy Spirit had been withdrawn from the New Testament church, 95% of what they did would stop and everybody would know the difference. It would stop because it's got the Holy Spirit behind it. The only reason they could do those things was because they have the Holy Spirit. And so the initial mark of really a Spirit-filled church is the filling of the Holy Spirit. And not, it's not a one-time filling, really, as we look into the New Testament. If we, if we have time to look at the New Testament and see that's an, an ongoing filling of the Holy Spirit. And so, again, we begin to, as I begin to wind this sermon down, what I want you to begin to think about is, you know, if, if the Holy Spirit was somehow pulled out of Bellevue Christian Church, would anything change? Would anybody notice? That's a heavy question to ponder. Because again, we've already mentioned there's a lot of good things happening in the church, some, some very good things. You know, but we just don't know, you know, what would happen if, you know, if, if suddenly the Spirit was gone, you know, would anything change? If the answer is yes, there'd be all sorts of changes that would happen. Then we would know that for the most part, we're operating under the power of the Spirit. But if nothing changed at all and everything just kept as normal, you know, that we're doing things that, that any club could do, any organization could do, would that, you know, that would suggest that maybe we're operating on our own power or we're operating on the power under the power of man, man's power rather than the power of the Holy Spirit. And don't get me wrong, I personally believe that if the Spirit was to leave the church, we would notice because I know there's many spirit-led people in this church who are doing ministry that they wouldn't do without the leading of the spirit, without the prompting of the spirit. Ministries that would be led, that are being led behind the scenes, that are things that are happening, gifts that are being used that I don't even I'm aware of. Again, things that are happening that would give an indication that the spirit is alive and well in the church, but we can never really know for sure. So the best we can do is go and look at the the book of Acts. 
Again, the first eight chapters when the church was kind of being launched. And look for those marks of the Holy Spirit, of the Holy Spirit's presence. You know, what we'd see is we'd see things like a really intensive prayer life, a really intensive worship life. We would see a very biblical-based church, very biblical-based teachings. We would see extreme generosity. We would see courageous action. We would see a lot of evangelistic activity. Those are things, as we begin to look, we begin to see that those are some of the marks of the early church. And so all we can do as a church as we go through the series is to begin to compare ourselves to those marks and basically see how we measure up. And if for some reason we see that we really don't measure up in some areas, you know, all we can really do is kind of repent, open ourselves up to, to a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit, and then put the other things in place that would accompany it, you know, training and, and ministries and, and that sort of thing. And so again, in a, in a few years, we would be able to look at our church and go back and evaluate and say, yes, the church is a good church, but it's becoming a, a, a really great church. And we know it's a, directly attributed not to, again, the, the, the doing of men, but the work of the Holy Spirit doing really great things in the midst of our congregation. Let us pray. Thanks for listening. If that teaching moved you or left you with questions, let us know by sending a message to hello at bellevuechristian.church. And be sure to subscribe to this podcast for a new teaching from us every single week.